Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the August edition of our Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben? I am good. I'm looking forward to these articles. Um, and it's been a big month. It has been. You've been off speaking at places and you're getting ready for Don't Forget the Bubbles Conference, various other things. We are, yeah. And I did just want to shout out, we've got some more uh, self-development modules uploaded as well. So I saw uh, that. There's one on debriefing questions and one on clinical event debriefing. Very exciting. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, looking forward to people using them. Mm. So just for a reminder for those of you who didn't hear our episode about uh, Ben's team's self-development modules, uh, you can go onto the website www.simulationpodcast.com and there's a section there entitled self-development modules and these lovely PDFs with some resources, questions to be done either on your own or with a friend. Uh, while we're talking about news, don't forget the Simulation Reconnect event at Bond University, uh, Wednesday, 16th of November, a joint um, one-day seminar between Simulcast and the Bond Translational Sim Collaborative. And again, if you just Google Translational Simulation Collaborative and Bond, you'll come across the details for registration there. Uh, we've got Gabe Reedy talking, but also some other complete stars uh, such as Nancy Sadka from the Northern Hospital, people like Steph Barwick from the Mata, Ben, you're talking as well, uh, Eve Purdy uh, and other luminaries. All right, but we've got four papers to talk about today, so we better get into it, eh, Ben? Sounds good. All right, well, I'm going to kick things off with a paper from Advances in Simulation just released, and this is an innovation-type uh, article. And the title is Development of a Simulation Technical Competence Curriculum for Medical Simulation Fellows. And this is by Rami Ahmed and a team, most of who are from the uh, Indiana University School of Medicine. And, and look, I think there's two points to this article, Ben, right up front. Uh, one is it's a paper which details a way we might learn about sim tech, so to speak. But I think it's also a nice paper because it maybe teaches us a little bit about curriculum development. So, but what is the paper all about? Well, their background rationale says that uh, simulation fellows, and in particular medical educators who become sim fellows, with the emphasis on the word medical, uh, have actual variable learning in the technical aspects of sim. And we know lots of good people like Damien Shield and Michael Magadushian have done a heap of work on developing curricula for sim fellows and a lot of research they've published. But I think it's fair to say it's often weighted towards simulation design, debriefing, pedagogy, and those sort of topics. And I do agree with their rationale where the sort of technical aspects of sim are variably taught. And I think that's really become in a lot sharper focus these days now that that group, whether you call them operations specialists or uh, technical specialists, they've now got their own qualifications and I think a much more clear curriculum thanks to uh, the Society for Simulation and Healthcare and others. Would that be your appraisal, Ben, that that is a bit of a gap for particularly doctors who become sim fellows? Oh, I think it's just so true, and I really liked how the article highlighted that. And I can see, I sort of agree, I particularly think there's a a strong North American model of there being quite a, a clear sort of division of labour in terms of that being its own subspecialty in many ways. Um, and I'd certainly find... 
within the Australian context at least, that we do have a little bit more role blurring and uh, sort of sense of everybody pitching in some of the time, but certainly still a core group of people, we'd call them Simcoes in our place, hold, holding that knowledge base and the rest of us following on with a fairly muddled through apprenticeship type model that they describe here. Mm, absolutely. I, I think I was lucky to start in a very small crew in my simulation world and so we had to know what plugged into what uh, but I do recognize that with our own simulation fellows and registrars they'll often get halfway through the term and I'll notice that they don't even really know how to switch on stuff and um, think hmm, could have done a better job there. So this report, uh, to use their terminology, describes the instructional designs, implementation and program evaluation of their institution's SIM technology curriculum. Now, to give you an idea about that institution, um, the Indiana University SIM Centre is big. Uh, they tell us they have 50,000 learner hours a year, 1,200 simulation events. They have 22 staff, 10 of whom have the qualification of the Certified Healthcare Simulation Operations Specialists. So I think it's fair to say this is a pretty big concern. I think that's relevant uh, as we go through the paper. And so what they're talking about is the experience of eight simulation fellows over three years who experienced uh, this simulation tech curriculum, which was put together by an expert group, and one of whom in particular had already done a, set up a similar curriculum at another institution. Now, as I said, one of the really interesting things here was how they described their curriculum development, and they used the Kern's six steps. And for those who aren't into health professional education, um, this is a pretty commonly used conceptual model for curriculum development more broadly, not just in SIM. And uh, going through the steps, they had to do a problem identification, which we've just talked about. There are some SIM fellows who don't know enough about tech. Uh, and then the needs assessment. And I think this was a particularly hard thing to do for this. And I think when you're trying to think what are the knowledge and skills you need for so-called tech, there's a real tension between having generic enough skills that you can take it to your next place, but specific enough that you know this mannequin that's kept down the hall, it has an on button here. And so I think there is a bit of a tension between sort of generic tech skills and those specific to equipment uh, that might be at this particular simulation program. But what they settled on was um, four areas, hardware and software for mannequins, tech troubleshooting, which I do think is a massive topic, uh, task trainer setups and their learning management system, so also the IT system. So that's what they choose for those, but I think this is one of the things that any program would probably have to do for themselves. Uh, the third step of the model is goals and objectives. The fourth step is the educational strategy. So this is how you're going to teach the stuff that we identified in the what step beforehand. And for them, it was uh, a kind of two-week intensive immersive training. Uh, and then there was the usual asynchronous reading and background supporting material. Obviously, they still had their apprenticeship, which is hang about with the Simcoes and watch what they do and talk to them about it. And then a summative competency assessment, which is probably quite different, certainly to what I've experienced. Uh, step five, implementation, where you actually have to schedule this and find the faculty and the teaching activities. And finally, the program evaluation. And for them, that consisted of things like checklists, um, doing the assessment and also feedback from the faculty and the fellows, which unsurprisingly was quite good. 
Uh, and in their discussion, I, I did like this point, Ben, the, the irony that so many of these programs teach clinical skills by deliberate practice, but then the sim tech is completely haphazardly taught. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. But to my mind, Ben, I think this is a, a nice little uh, summary of what they did uh, with more than a few pointers for people who might be looking to do the same thing. I agreed. I love that it pointed out a significant problem and then and then roadmap to really nice, elegant solution. I highlighted the same thing that you did, that great irony. Um, so I thought it was a lovely paper. Yeah, exactly. And I think mm. there were a few interesting points when they dived into their feedback. Uh, the learners really liked the idea of doing an intensive because learners often do, even though we know that massed practice is probably not as effective as the spaced repetition. Uh, and the fact that they like to do it as a cohort, again, cohorts often do like to hang out as gangs and they didn't really want to mix in with other people who were just coming for elements of that. So it's interesting. The feedback tended to follow the learner preferences here. I'm not quite as uh, not quite as embracing of all the learner feedback, I have to admit, Ben. Uh, and I think the point that this is a large sim centre and what they did might not be reproducible by others, but I think that six-step approach is useful and a nice reminder that uh, don't just jump in and say this is what I want to teach and hope it teaches itself. Yeah, agreed. We did. We had a um, really fun live, die, repeat uh, mannequin technology day once where the, there was an endless loop of uh, a course that was about to start in the next five minutes and gradually increasingly complex problems with the mannequin that you had to solve while <laughs> Mission Impossible music played over the speakers. <laughs> it's really fun. I want to come and work in your sim program. This sounds like fun. <laughs> it was a good day, that one. Yeah. Yeah. The troubleshooting, I, I feel like it's hard to replicate that, but it sounds like you found a way uh, through designing those little dilemmas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Louise Dodson, one of our nurse educators, has been, because she uh, goes to every hospital in Queensland, basically, yep. and has to fix things on the fly in wow. a sim lab she's never been at, had designed something really, really quite elegant. Yeah. It's, a, it's almost like an episode of Thank God You're Here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, you're going to talk to us uh, right from the hardcore tech over to the art-enhanced debriefing. Uh, absolutely. So thank you for giving me this one, given my old visual arts degree. So uh, this article is called A Nursing Simulation Pilot Study Comparing Art-Enhanced Debriefing and traditional debriefing. And it's from a pretty high-powered nursing research team, including some friends of Simulcast, so Patria Anderson and Susie Cardong-Edrin, and that's uh, published in Clinical Simulation in Nursing. And this article welcomes us to the world, Vic, of art-based pedagogy, uh, which was certainly new for me, which they define as combining art with another subject matter to impact student learning. And so the authors basically argue that simulation debriefing and healthcare education in general can really be quite binary at times, dividing answers up into right and wrong, and that this is inherently reductionist. And they also ask, argue that simulated experiences can elicit significant emotion and that art might play a part in unlocking the processing of that experience in a different way to a traditional debrief. So how do you explore that? Well, what they did is uh, they created this pilot study and provided simulation participants with art cards at the end of the debrief. And during the summaries phase, where learners are usually sharing their take-homes, uh, they were invited at the beginning of that to pick 
from a big group of art cards, uh, something that represented their learning journey on the day or their take home. So methods-wise, they took sort of 42 students and ran them, interestingly, through two group-based surgical scenarios and then video recorded the debriefs where each individual acted as their own control. So first time around, they were offered those pictures and to choose from, and then the second debrief, they weren't. And this is tricky, right? Because I feel like the question here was, how does a debrief change when you incorporate art into it is kind of the big picture thing. And that, like, good Lord, how do you try and really measure that? And so they whittled it down uh, to a couple of very specific questions. Uh, how the number of words in a participant's take-home changes and whether the kind of words they use changes. And they also looked at sort of what types of cards people actually picked. So the art cards themselves were pretty variable. There were things like owl, girl with hands over her face, nerd into Superman, hot pepper in the mouth man, starry night at cabin. Uh, And there were some commonalities in the ones that people would choose. Uh, but the debriefs were sort of described and the data was analysed. Numbers-wise, the number of words in each take-home increased, but only from a mean of 30 to a mean of 40. Uh, and i got to say I was a little bit cynical here because, you know, unsurprisingly, the participants who were asked to do two tasks, which is explain both your take-home and your picture and how they interrelate, spoke more than the group who were asked, what's your take-home? Uh, and I suspect that this wasn't as large an increase as the investigators were potentially anticipating. Uh, you look like you got something to say. Well, yes. And uh, I think first thing is I've got a picture in my head. And I just want to check if it's the same as the one you've got. So I've just been through this simulation, for example, and I've say I've had to be the airway doctor in a uh, situation where we had a terrible acute severe asthma and I'm coming back out and maybe I just managed to cope, uh, but I pick up girl with head full of things card and I go, I picked this one because I just felt so cognitively overloaded in there trying to check my equipment while I was doing that something else. Is that the kind of picture that you've got in your head is that I've got a feeling about my experience and my take home and I'm going to pick this up and go, my head's really full. And when I do that, I know I've just got to focus on the things in front of me or something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect description. And certainly from the, I think it's table three where they give some examples, that's exactly what the participants did. So, you know, they would identify a visual metaphor and certainly the cards appeared to mostly have been chosen to sort of resemble or at least stimulate the thought of a a visual metaphor uh, and then explore and hopefully deepen their explanation of why they were feeling that way and how that art uh, was associated for them and with that particular experience. Yeah. Can I just say, I think one of the funnest parts of this must have been picking some of those pictures because that would have been super fun. Yeah. <laughs> they, they got a big mix as well. I think they, they, they did. all bought I, in. Like, I know. Well, I know. Hot yeah. pepper in the artfully nude girl diving into water. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're having yeah. more interesting simulations than me. <laughs> uh, but to your point, I totally agree. I, I, I found the first part of that question really good, which is how does the introduction of the cards change your debrief, the experience of it, or the translation of what you do back to practice? I think that's a great question. Answering it with the number of words, uh, I, I kind of went, oh, that's that, that didn't have quite as much validity for me, although obviously it was countable and they video recorded these and they could transcribe them. So it was countable, I guess, and it... It's a good lesson in that we tend to measure what we can count. Uh, but 
Another way would have been just to ask them uh, how did having the cards change things and uh, listen to if they found it useful as a way of then getting into a deeper concept than just some words. And I, and I think one of the things that I liked about it is I have been a bit stuck on my take-home message part of my debrief lately, and I find about 10% of people when you – no matter how clearly I ask it, they just seem to get their deer-in-the-headlights look – and then they just parrot out something like closed loop communication, which you might not have even talked about, but which seems to be, oh, I'm sitting in a sim, I need to talk about closed loop communication or situational awareness or good communication. And they just anchor onto a topic that you know doesn't mean anything. Whereas I think with this, one of the benefits is at least people are really forced to get into the, this is why I've picked this and potentially explore it a bit more deeply. So I suspect it did have a bigger impact than their results showed, but I don't know how to measure that and I don't think they uh, did either. Yeah, and thanks for highlighting as well. Um, I struggle with those in take-homes as well. My mum used to always talk about uh, growing up Catholic and then at like 10 having to go to church and then like invent a sin that she would confess to the priest later. <laughs> like just to make something up so that you had something that you could say you done wrong that week. <laughs> and sometimes in the take-homes, I'm feeling that energy. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like so here, have some art, pick something else, tell me how it's related. <laughs> Damn it, what's the difference between a venial and a mortal sin? I've forgotten again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I could see that as a strategy. And I would say, you know, from their qualitative sort of analysis, they do, they noted some themes. So people were tending to think about the idea of becoming, of making sense of what had happened and of challenging, channeling feelings. And that they noted that when they were given art cards, the participants' take-homes were more self-reflective. And like you said, they were less likely to incorporate clinically focused things, but also things that other they were less likely to be an echo chamber of what other people had said. And that seemed kind of cool. Certainly in the examples shown in Table 3, the difference between the non-card group and the card group is actually really large. I do note that the mean difference between those examples is very different from the reported numbers, so I feel like they've picked some good examples of the contrast that maybe aren't representative of the changes in the whole. Um, but I also feel like these have been, you know, uh, unless you also include a picture of the actual clinical take-homes, like, I don't know, like a picture of a massive transfusion protocol, then maybe some of them would have actually chosen that too. And so I feel like this as a strategy is helping people to talk about a different type of reflection, but it's also railroading them into that and we start then forming our narrative around the medium that we've been given to express it. So it's quite an interesting kind of philosophical challenge there. Yes, I actually wrote that right at the top of my notes about this. They were really, these cards were really used to draw out the affective or feeling elements of the experience because you're right, right up the front, there's a bit in the discussion about the cognitive experience that people have uh, and you don't really give them an outlet for that if you give them a bunch of cards of the um, owl or the something else. It's, as you say, it's not really related to whatever is the clinical content of it. So, And now maybe that's because they're the things that people find harder to talk about. I could actually accept that as a rationale. Uh, and it's not wrong. It's just a thing, I think. Uh, and it would have been interesting to see if they had started to give out little pictograms of 
clinical things if they would have been chosen. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So there's a nicely written study from a group of powerhouse nurses in SIM who I really respect. I've got to be honest, I don't think I'll be pulling out the art therapy cards just yet for my own SIM. So I do feel like there's a little bit of the medium forcing a particular type of conversation and there's a little bit of almost authority gradient in that rather than necessarily empowering people to share whatever that is. So it's something I'll continue to wrestle and think about. Hmm. Okay, man, you pull out the deep thought right at the end there, Ben. (laughs) That's how we roll. That is indeed. All right, well, speaking of friends, uh, the next paper is also from a group at Monash Simulation, uh, including Jai Gard, and Ian Summers is the last author on this paper. And it's a research paper from Advances in Simulation, just published. Uh, The title is Simulation Translation Differences Between Craft Groups. Uh, and this is also pretty interesting. They they talk about the fact that we often see great learning in sim and people enjoy it and tell us they enjoy it and tell us they learn stuff. But uh, often we don't know how that is actually translated back to practice. And I use the word how, not if, because we do know things come out of sim back to practice. But are they the ones we hope? Are they the ones we think? Uh, and how do we know? One of the things they point out in this background is that as simulation providers, we often assume that making things real in every sense, whether that's the environment, the team, the clinical situation, will support good translation back to practice. Uh, But they say maybe instead just a a translational simulation approach, start at the end what impact you want and then work backwards. Uh, But also they make the point that is this output phase of translational simulation measuring the impact uh, that they really wanted to do in this study. So they, and I'm going to quote from there, their aim to understand the lived experience of clinicians who attend a simulation-based education event. So as you might expect, if people start using the words lived experience. Uh, This was a phenomenologic approach where they identified lived experience through thematic analysis of learning reflections of participants. Uh, So this is the setting at Monash Simulation. So that's in Melbourne, Australia for our international listeners. And the attendees at these simulations were doctors, nurses, or students from different areas. It did happen during the COVID-19 pandemic, which almost certainly had an impact, uh, but they didn't go too much into that. But it certainly was a time when it was probably quite hard to get people together. And so these uh, learners came to their simulations, which were a variety of different courses, programs, topic areas. But whoever, whatever course they were going to, they asked, they gave them two questionnaires. The first was given to them immediately after the program and the second was eight weeks after and the first questionnaire uh, pretty simple please list three things you learned from this course that you will use in your clinical environment second how often do you expect to use it Uh, third over the next year how will you be able to tell if today's learning has changed your clinical practice and uh, Ben I don't know about you but these are pretty common evaluation questions in feedback forms I've seen them They're, they're they're standard yeah pretty fair for questions too you know short to the point, succinct, but asking, you know, where is the meaning in this intervention? So yeah. I, I like them. And mm. I think priming for how does it translate back. Mm. Then eight weeks later, they had a second questionnaire and they get 
pretty more tangible. How often have you used the skills or learning since the course? Is this more or less than expected? If you were going to further upskill, what could you take? Uh, please tell us about either a time you've used the lessons from your Monash Sim or why you have not used your lessons. So again, pretty short and sweet. Uh, in terms of then who completed it, the first questionnaire, they got 206 people to fill it out. The second one, they got 67 to fill it out, about 30%. Um, and to be honest, I think that's actually not a bad amount from a, uh, you always lose a few, I think, over eight weeks. And of those 67, 37 were doctors, 26 nurses, and four were students. So what did they actually say? So as I said, um, through their thematic analysis, looking at this lived experience, there were three central themes. The first they called workplace mirroring. And right back, as they said in their uh, original part, you know, if you can see similarity between the situation in which you learnt things in the sim and then in clinical practice, it's pretty easy to translate. And lots of learners saw an easy transfer of the practice of some of the generic skills, particularly around things like team familiarity and team working to uh, the clinical environment where even if the clinical situation was different, they were able to use the generic skills, things like recognizing cognitive overload, um, talking about shared mental models. Uh, but others um, seem to need closer clinical context to transfer, i.e. if you didn't look after a head injury in SIM, then you couldn't really see its applicability unless uh, in a head injury in the clinical environment. And they seem to think that more doctors thought that than others. Their second central theme was self-assessment. And they sort of had, you know, how do you know that you have transferred some things? Doctors tended to find uh, themselves as the source of evidence of translation, internally comparing if they've improved according to what they wanted, whereas the nurses tended to look to others such as feedbacks for example, from their nurse unit manager. And finally, and I think this is a big one, and I think we'll end up talking about this a little bit, uh, but the third theme was successful confidence. And they use the word confidence with air quotes around it a bit, or quotation marks. Uh, confidence is very highly prized, and I don't think that'll be any surprise to anyone, but so highly prized that it came out to be their third theme. So what do you think, Ben, well, about the study, but also about what they found? Uh, a number of things. So <clears throat> I guess I really enjoyed it. I think we haven't sort of explored it fully yet, but some of the very specific stuff they drew out about the way that doctors and nurses both assess themselves, perceive the way they learn uh, and trust others or themselves to be part of that feedback loop. Uh, and I thought the article acknowledged that and um broke down the reasons or the potential reasons why very well and acknowledged the different ways that we train and the different sort of philosophies that often underpin that. Um, certainly my big take-home from the article was uh, I am concerned from this piece of evidence that uh, medical staff struggle with the sort of germane learning part of simulation and that maybe uh, this article is a useful prompt to really think about uh generalizing some of those take-homes and learning points and thinking more explicitly about how we're going to use this in a different context. Uh, that was probably my big thing. But I did notice the quotation marks quite a lot. <laughs> I uh, uh, and I got a very strong impression as a reader that they weren't very happy about this 
sense of confidence uh, that they were making it very clear from their sarcastic quotation marks that confidence did not equal confidence. I agree with you. I think it's such an important question. I'm so pleased that they did that extra work. And I think the first take home is we should all be trying to do some work on what really is the translation of what we do into practice. Um, I'm not sure that the only fault line here is with between the craft groups. I think some of it is between the kinds of things people take away versus not. And, uh, you know, I'm always influenced by the work that we have done with this. And it does seem that a lot of more of these team working conceptual things uh, are easier to take away because they are probably more talked about for a start. And people don't take away things like what's the dose of rocuronium because hopefully you learn that in another context. So anyway, my point being, I, I'm not sure that just trying to separate differences between doctors and nurses is the only finding from this. Uh, it may be that there are other influences on what gets taken away than the profession. And I think they were kind of a bit set on that as they went into it. Uh, anyway, it's in, it is interesting though, to see those two things. And I really, the bit about confidence, just to go back to that, the reason I think they felt dissatisfied about that is we know confidence is such a terrible measure of competence. Terrible. Uh, that said, and we had this discussion with our uh, faculty group earlier this week, self-efficacy is not a bad thing. You are more likely to be successful at something if you think you're going to be. So it's a bit of a bind. Uh, we certainly shouldn't use it as a outcome measure of our interventions because they may or may not have improved but as a uh, self-assessment of confidence for future performance that's not necessarily a terrible thing sometimes it is but uh, not necessarily yeah and I think it's very fair that as a participant when you have just gone through a simulated experience one of your big take-homes is I will feel more confident doing this real thing now that I've rehearsed it. Like that, that is part of the learning in sim and one of the big profound things, even if it's not super exciting or necessarily the same thing as competence. I think that's certainly part of my journey as a trainee going through sim is the things I haven't seen yet that I have now at least got a schematic and memory and story of in my head that's a hugely powerful part of it. Yeah, exactly. It's a very small minority who get confident when they shouldn't. There's not too many people, I think, that come to SIM and go, hey, I managed to do X procedure, now I'm an expert at it. I think there's, that's very unlikely. Uh, the other topic about self-assessment is swimming in my head because Natasha Yates is doing a PhD on that that I am part of the supervisory team for, and I feel like I know more about self-assessment than I ever thought I would in a lifetime. Uh, but it is interesting how where people go for their sources of how good am I. And I think what we're seeing here is a lot more than the simulation uh, effect. I think there are powerful influences on how people see their performance through others or themselves. The one quote I really wanted to highlight that was very helpful, back to my point about not being very good at take-home messages in my debriefs, uh, me I mean, uh, is that this highlighted the need for simulation educators to help learners co-develop workplace translation strategies and guide the choice of performance indicators. So I think what it makes me think, I shouldn't just say, what's your take-home message? And if someone says something, 
try and really reinforce that with a reflection back. Oh, so you mean that at the beginning of a shift, you're going to say this to yourself or at the beginning of a shift, you're going to introduce yourself to the airway nurse uh, because you've discovered that knowing your team members is a great thing. And I feel like I have not been doing that, Ben, and this article will encourage me to. Yeah, I think that's a really good tip. All right. Well, again, congratulations, team at Monash. Well done. Mm. Speaking of great writers, your last paper yeah, so is from the editors at IJOS. It is. And you just, such a gift landed in my lap when this came through on the <laughs> Dropbox and you let me talk about this one because I just loved it. Uh, so it's an editorial by Paul Murphy and Deborah Nistel uh, entitled Healthcare Simulation Terms promoting critical reflection. And this was just my favourite kind of editorial bit because it validated my pre-existing beliefs and I just spent the whole time furiously <laughs> nodding. <laughs> I'll but, see if I can find some more of those for you. Yeah. <laughs> but self-deprecation aside, I think it is really worth a read by anyone working in healthcare sim because it's concise, it's well-written, it's referenced with great evidence and there's a clear logic to it, but it's also poetic and fun. Um it contains a lovely quote uh, from a play called Translations. It says, remember that words are signals, counters. They are not immortal. And it can happen that a civilization can be imprisoned in a linguistic contour that no longer matches the landscape of fact. And that there is really the core of the article. It's essentially a call to arms to continue critical and robust reflection about the terms that we use in healthcare simulation. And the authors argue with very clear passion that the healthcare simulation community has a number of terms that are inaccurate and clearly no longer fit for purpose and that we need to do better when it comes to reflecting and correcting them because, and I quote, uh, words are the means by which our community shares its practices, reveals its values and develops future practitioners. So the article just follows with a fantastic breakdown and takedown of a number of terms that we use, uh, just so poorly in sim literature, in particular the terms standardised patients, non-technical skills, and non-verbal communication. And they highlight the risks of using a term like standardised patients, which in some ways can be dehumanising and also overemphasises the role of SPs in assessment and underestimates their role in patient advocacy and education. They break down the fact that the term non-technical skills is a complete oxymoron that is pretty meaningless as soon as you start thinking about it for 30 seconds. They argue that a skill is always technical and that behavioural skills are just as central to healthcare as technological skills. And finally, they explore how superficial the term non-verbal communication really is and provide a lovely overview of the ways that verbal and gestural communication have evolved codependently over history. Similarly, highlighting the fact that the paralinguistic features in our verbal communication, which are so, so important to how we're perceived and heard and acted on, uh, are heavily underanalyzed. So things like our pace, things like rhythm and pitch, etc. So all in all, I just thought this was both delightful, poetic uh, and full of many truths. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I'm definitely going to throw in a bit of gestural communication and paralinguistic features of communication. I feel like this is words I have not been using and they're an addition to my own vocabulary, that's for sure. Uh, and I think I also like this phrase, 
particularly doing the research we have been doing on equity, diversity and inclusion, uh, language has always been fraught with politics and meaning is radically contingent on context. A, that's a great sentence. Uh, and B, it's correct, <laughs> I think. And they, again, for uh, people who should read it, but the play is about the politics of Ireland within the United Kingdom and uh, the plight of a school teacher trying to decide whether to teach in English. And I guess it just understands that there's so many of these uh, problems in our history that language is the way we have uh, manifested some of the conflict sometimes. And we see plenty of that right now. And uh, healthcare simulation may not be the place where we solve it all, but it shouldn't be the place where we ignore it. And I think rather than one of my take-homes, though, isn't that we just ban words. I don't think that is a good take-home. I think we should, as they encourage us to, critically reflect on words and their meanings. And occasionally they might offer opportunities for us to discuss the real world in all its um, imperfections uh, as a trigger for it. So, uh, yes, thank you, as per usual, from Deborah and Paul, uh, lovely language users. Agreed. And I, I do agree that I think that philosophy of we're not going to publish a set of rules, but we've got to really think hard about this and keep discussing it is it really comes through quite powerfully in the article. Yes. And we look forward to more from them and more from International Journal of Healthcare Simulation, which uh, finding its feet, but we've seen plenty of good stuff out of there. And I'm sure we'll be seeing more excellent articles as well. Absolutely. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure, uh, the August Journal Club. I appreciate your hard work again and uh, looking forward to September. You have fun at Don't Forget the Bubbles Conference and uh, many more good things coming up. We will. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll chat to you soon for more articles. All right. This is Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. Simulcast. 